unprecedented. We've heard so many ways to describe living through the pandemic, but is there a way to better understand these seismic changes? And what connects storytelling and philosophy? Welcome to The Possible Podcast. This is episode three of the second series. It's all about bringing creative thinking into arts and humanities research. I'm Paul Drury Brady, the entrepreneur in residence, and I'm interested in community, collaboration, new connections, and making ideas matter. This episode is called Notes from the Northeast and examines research from the philosophy department, asking how these ideas, frameworks, and ways of thinking can help us make sense of the world around us. I spoke to Jill Cole, the director of Northern Heartlands, an amazing organization delivering cultural activities that transform people's understanding of the heritage, landscapes and places they live in. We do all sorts of things. Basically, we're funded by Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. And it's very much about placemaking, using arts, culture, heritage, creativity with communities to get them to think about their place, but also to use that to help Um, build confidence and to influence policies, decisions that are made about those places, really on the assumption that the people who live in places know those places best and know what is best for those places. So it's been a really, really interesting journey. And we've found out all sorts of things from all sorts of people. But actually, of course, just in the last few months, hit by lockdown and the pandemic. So we've been working very, very hard to continue through that and to shift the focus of what we've been doing and how we've been delivering it, but to maintain all those principles. And in terms of how that has changed, how the pandemic has changed people and their connections, I mean, obviously, it's it's quite early to say, but I think we all recognise the value of the hyper-localism that's come out of the pandemic, of necessity. We've all been having to talk to our neighbours. We've been out in our streets clapping on a Thursday and seeing people across the road. Um, and on VE Day, you know, people came out into the streets and met people they hadn't met who live five doors down. So there's a localism happening, um, which is really celebratory, I think, and discovering all sorts of connections with people that we didn't have when we were all rushing out to our workplaces every day. Um, so there's, I know it's been just so awful and traumatic for so many people, but I think that in terms of our, our place and our connection with our, our very, very local places, there's been a lot of positives come out of this. I asked Jill if the lockdown meant people had a deeper understanding of their region. I think they probably have. And I really hope that that change is long lasting. And it's both in terms of very local, understanding our back gardens more if we've got them. I know several people have talked about how they've, for the first time, started growing things in their back gardens and um, recognising the value of that. There is a project that we've been running pre-pandemic in Dean Valley and Eldon parishes just outside Bishop Auckland. And it was very much about growing and colonising the spaces and places in between people's homes and houses. And a lot of the wasteland, it was one of the many Category D villages of County Durham. And you can still see the foundations of the old mining terraces in the village. And uh, the community has come together to start growing flowers and food in those 
spaces and that project is continuing and in fact during the pandemic we've been been sent pictures of of it all coming to fruition really over those lovely hot days we had so i think people have a sense of pride in local places and yeah a deeper connection just because we've had all these limitations we haven't had anywhere else to go we haven't got in our cars and gone miles we've just gone over the road or around the corner and that makes you connect more care more be more interested in those places and spaces and when we're really hoping to build on that and working also with with historians and landscape historians who can tell people by looking at places how they've changed why they've changed and how places are always impacted by people who live there and do things in those places so it's interesting times I asked you why Durham is so special. Well, it's a really interesting question, Paul, because I think that, as you can probably hear, I'm not local, but I've lived in County Durham for 30 years and brought my children up here. And it's the longest I've ever lived anywhere. I feel so connected to it. And what is remarkable about this place is how the landscape has determined, it's the geology has determined what people have done here. So whether that's hill farming, whether it's lead mining, whether it's coal mining, whether it's the steel, it's because of what is under our feet that has determined what for generations the people of this place have done. And therefore the connection with that land and with that landscape and with that geology, as well as all the stories that go along with that, is massive. And now that that industry has stopped, the the sense of loss isn't just about, I think, isn't just about communities and, and, and losing, you know, mining parades and, and everything that went around the, the mining industry. It's losing that connection with our landscape. And, and maybe, just maybe, that is something that has come out of the pandemic because we've got connected again with the land and the place that we are and realising its value. It is a fascinating thing. And, and I mean, the hill farmers, we've worked a lot with hill farmers and talked about their connections with their place and valuing their understanding and knowledge of their place, which is so rarely taken into account in, in big decisions that are made about farming policy. But, but generations have handed down knowledge and understanding of a very, very particular place. And I think the, the thing that we've learned over the three years we've been running the Great Place Scheme is that there's no one size fits all, that every place is as particular as the people who live in it and that we really need to value and listen to people and hear their stories. We've been doing a lot of gathering of stories and um, I know in your podcast series there's a lot about stories and storytelling and how valuable they are to understanding the place, understanding the people and then being able to make decisions about what is right to happen there. But where do these deep roots of philosophical and community understanding come from? I had an idea that County Durham's local folklore inspired much of this. I decided to speak to an author who's had books published on local stories. My name's Adam Bushnell and I'm an author from Durham. I write children's fiction, I write teacher training books and I also write folk tales. Well, I've noticed people outside walking an awful lot more as opposed to being in their cars. One thing that happens just before the lockdown is that I got a new dog. So I've been doing lots of dog walking, which connects you with people in a completely different way. I've never had a dog before. And all of a sudden I'm talking to all these dog walkers or people want to talk to you because they want to know about the dog. And I suppose people are communicating an awful lot more if they've been furloughed, they're perhaps setting um, 
you know, time aside so they can go and exercise. And I just notice a lot more people in the community. But on top of that as well, even on platforms like this or platforms like Teams and Zoom, etc., it is about that, that communication. And I think people are talking to each other an awful lot more. But then that specifically lends itself to, I suppose, wanting to perhaps know more about the local area that you're exploring. If you are exercising, if you are going out and about, then people want to know about that local area and different routes and different walks that they can be doing, etc. I asked Adam if he believed the lockdown had inspired more of an interest in folklore. I suppose so. I mean, interestingly, recently I was out with, for a walk with the dog and I bumped into one of my neighbours and she started asking me, she's from America, so she's only lived in this area for a few years and she started asking me a little bit about the history of this area, asking me about place names, but also asking me about um, the woodland areas and why this particular wilder areas than others. And I suppose people are interested in the area that they're exploring, the area that they're spending more time in. And that's what people are doing, that they're, they're not travelling as much and they're, they're spending more time here. So they're wanting to know more about here and, and what that place is and what it has been in the past. And what makes this land so distinct? I suppose for me, um, I'm very fortunate in doing the job that I do in that in normal circumstances, I do a lot of travelling. And I've been to places like Malawi and Vietnam and China and and I do get to visit lots of different schools and educational places to do talks about books and about writing. But for me, the Northeast is absolutely my favourite place on earth. I've been to some incredible places, but the Northeast is such a varied and rugged landscape. And I can get in my car and I can drive further north and be in Northumberland and that Northumberland coastline. But I can also explore the coastlines around Durham, which are massively varied. But equally, I can go out to Weirdale and I can spend time in the woods there. I can walk down at the River Tyne and I'm not too far from the River Weir. I think it's just such a varied and spectacular landscape where light seems to be the heart of everything. You've got the light from the sky, but you've also got the light reflected in the water and the light reflected in the trees. And I think it's a magical place. It's almost like a surreal place, the perfect setting for folktales. To give us a flavour of our region, I asked Adam to read a few lines from one of his books. This one's a story called The Soldier in the Wall, which is a true story, I believe, that's taken from Crook Hall, which is down on the riverbank in Durham. And it opens like this. A small hill overlooks the north bank of the River Weir. From this hill, the cathedral dominates the spectacular view. On this hill stands Crook Hall. It is Durham's hidden secret. The house was built in 1286 and is one of the oldest homes in the city. It nestles within a cluster of six acres of secret gardens. The house and hall is a mixture of medieval, Jacobean and Georgian designs. But it is the hall itself that holds a dark secret. A secret that is within the very walls themselves. Morning Claire, please could you introduce yourself and what you do? I'm Claire McCool and I'm a lecturer in the Department of Philosophy. And I work on a group of women philosophers that were at Oxford during World War II, including Mary Midgley, who is the late and great philosopher from Newcastle, and Iris Murdoch. So I'm interested in what philosophy tells us about how communities and people understand each other. What do you think philosophy can tell us about this? There's a tendency to think of philosophy as a discipline of the abstract and the universal. So there's lots of grand abstract questions that philosophers continually return to. So questions about existence and death or about the nature of the self or space and time. But sometimes focusing only on the universal abstracts too far from the everyday. 
So one philosopher that I work on who was able to combine both the universal and the particular was Iris Murdoch. So she noticed that an essential feature of our humanity was our capacity to tell stories and to create pictures. And in fact, she thought that the central job of the moral philosopher was to analyze this capacity. So she said something which is often repeated, but I think it's worth repeating. She said, man is a creature who makes pictures of himself and then comes to resemble the picture. And her thought here is that pictures and art show us what we might aim at in life. And they also channel ways in which we might conceive of ourselves. So coming closer to home, Mary Midgley, who was a great friend of Iris Murdoch, she saw myth as the lifeblood of any kind of community or civilization. So she thought that myths tell us stories about ourselves, which help us to organize our patterns of thought and, and action across space and time. But she also warned that sometimes these myths can be harmful. So a large part of her work involved tracing of different myths that are pernicious and that she thought no longer served us. And she tended to think of our conceptual landscape, she was an environmental philosopher, a little like an ecology of ideas. And sometimes ideas and stories outstay their welcome. They overgrow and they need to be pruned back. So she was something of a sort of myth buster. How do you think this legendary Mary Midgley would have interpreted life in lockdown? And what does that mean for our connections and perceptions of the world around us? Well, I think she was legendary and very insightful, um, but also really optimistic philosopher. And I think she would have had very interesting things to say about our recent pandemic experience. So she was really dynamic and present, which is, uh, I'd say she was almost avant-garde, which is quite an odd thing to say of someone who was almost 100. So she died in 2018 at the age of 99. I think as far as possible, she would have tried to look on this period as an opportunity for change and growth, but also typically for her, characteristically, as an opportunity to expose some of those myths that no longer work. So I think it's plain, for example, that the lockdown has exposed the implausibility of a certain kind of liberal conception of the individual. So we've seen a lot of people writing about this and talking about this in the press. So that's the conception of the individual that sees the individual as free, autonomous and rational. So this kind of story treats each person as something like a homogenous atom in a social void. And each person is bound to the other person only through mutual self-interest. Well, Midgley thinks this kind of idea did have a political point or purpose at one time. So, for example, in the 18th century, when this idea allowed us to free ourselves from allegiance to a king or a sovereign. But now this idea has really overgrown its stay and its roots. For one thing, the only individuals that sort of mattered on this picture were male householders. Only male householders had a vote, so women didn't have a vote. So that's changed, of course, but still on this myth, we never would think of, for example, animals or the non-human world as individuals to whom we might have moral obligations or duties. And I think this brings into view a second myth that Midgley thought that the lockdown might have sort of unsettled or displaced. So I think it's kind of paradoxical, but the experiences that we've had of isolation during lockdown have brought home to loads of people just how very bound to each other that we actually are, and not at all through self-interest, okay? So we're essentially social creatures, and that's, I think, something that we all intuitively know or recognize about ourselves. But more than that, we're social animals. So one of the constant refrains in Midgley's work is not just that we're like animals, but we are animals. And like all animals, belong to places and we're continuous with the natural world. And I think the pandemic has really made this idea alive for us and kind of shown up the inadequacy and indeed the dangerousness of another culturally pervasive myth. And that's the 
technological, somewhat scientific idea of ourselves as creatures that somehow stand apart from nature and that nature is something for us to control and exploit. And as an environmental philosopher, Midgey thinks that this kind of attitude to nature is really disastrous. And she celebrates instead the kind of biophilia or love of living things that she finds, for example, in Charles Darwin. And she thinks that we ought rather to feel awe and wonder with respect to the natural world. And I think, again, we've seen lots of expressions of this kind of respect or awe during the lockdown. And again, it's kind of paradoxical because our ability to move freely in nature has been scaled right back. I'm interested in the connection between storytelling and philosophy. So, Claire, can you tell us how can stories and art help connect us to each other in the landscape? Well, just going back to my last uh, response, I think, you know, it's all very well to say that we feel we, you know, we ought to feel awe and wonder with respect to nature, because I think, you know, we all agree that the reality of lockdown for many people hasn't involved what might seem some kind of romantic rediscovery of nature. So, you know, plainly people have been suffering in all kinds of different ways, and we just have no idea yet what the legacy of this pandemic is going to be. But I think art is to have a really key role to play here, um, and that's in helping us come to terms with this weird reality, which isn't quite yet post-pandemic, but we don't know yet how to navigate it. And this is because art can show us how aspects of our experience and the world relate to each other in ways that we can't easily see because our own perspective on the world is limited and it's always ours from our own perspective. So we can put this a different way. So sometimes by telling stories and making other perspectives available, art can help us attend to reality in new ways and indeed it can help us see more of reality. And Midgley thinks that this, in fact, is something that the philosopher needs to do. So there's lessons for us professional philosophers as well, or anyone who's keen on philosophy. So she thinks the philosopher needs not only the skills of a lawyer, so that's the ability to scrutinise and examine and argue and defend, but those of the poet also. So she thinks philosophy is a creative discipline that involves relating bodies of knowledge to each other. And she thinks, you know, as I've said, philosophers need to explode myths that don't work. You know, that's what they ought to do. They ought to be sort of these myth busters pruning back these overgrown ideas. But they also need to be able to envision new and better ideas, uh, better myths. And these are what Mary would call myths to live by. Just exploring Mary's work a little bit more in the modern day, could you tell us about the Notes from a Biscuit Tin project and how are people in the North East getting involved? Sure. So Midgey would have been 100 last year. And to celebrate her philosophy and legacy, my colleague Rachel Wiseman at Liverpool University and I have come up with a year-long poetry philosophy activity which has seen her old biscuit tin go on a world voyage. So the biscuit tin left Newcastle last September um, on what would have been Mary's 100th birthday and it was scheduled to stop in 12 locations before the pandemic hit and it's now in lockdown in Tokyo. So the idea is that at each location a poet and a philosopher get together to discuss a theme from Mary's work. So for now the tin is returning for a virtual session at the Durham Book Festival in October before continuing on its journey, hopefully, if everything goes to plan, to Sydney, Tokyo, Munich, Paris and Dublin. And as part of that, we've developed a poetry and philosophy activity for children to take part in with help from New Writing North. 
So we've developed worksheets on Midgley's philosophy for children between the ages of 6 and 13, and they can be used at home by teachers, or they can be used at home or by teachers, and they mesh with the national curriculum as well. So, um, you know, parents don't need to feel they're, they can feel they're actually doing something really productive by using these worksheets. And we're also asking children to write a poem inspired by Mary's philosophy. So the deadline for the submission of the poems is this December, and a selection of poems will be published in a pamphlet and will be distributed to schools in the northeast so if your listeners want to find out more about that and download the worksheets they could visit our website the project website notesfromabiscuittin.com and they can also learn there a little bit about the northeast's most famous philosopher mary midgley i love to hear stories from the northeast i think that's why the research behind mary midgley's work is so interesting perhaps philosophy and storytelling have much more in common than people realize because Mary Midgley would have been 100 years old this year. More is being done to commemorate her birth and her remarkable achievements as a philosopher. A special collection of poetry and stories from young people has been published in her name. This will encourage different types of thinking from the world around us, reflecting on the pandemic, climate change, society, friendship and so much more. These Midgley young poets will be added to a special archive at Durham University. Do check out notesfromabiscuittin.com for more info. It strikes me that there's a universality here. In these difficult times, people are yearning for a structure to ideas to help them make sense of things. When philosophy and storytelling come together, that's when there's a great power to connect us.